creative journey It's easy to get lost But don't worry, you'll lift off Sometimes you just need a creative pep talk You're listening to the Creative Pep Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza! Have you ever had the experience where you make something in like seven seconds and it gets 70 times the reaction than something you put 70 hours in? Like something you made super quick with no effort hits your audience way harder than something you just put your heart and soul and time and effort and life into ever does. It's extremely frustrating when that happens. You know, there's this thing that happens with art where you hit a wall of diminishing returns where the extra effort doesn't correlate with extra effect on your audience. And so you can try and try and try, but it's not actually making it better. And that can be a very disheartening space. And that's where what we're going to talk about today comes in. We are in the middle of a creative zero to hero series. It's just a dumb way of talking about how do you go from having never picked up the guitar or the paintbrush all the way to writing the best song you're capable of writing. What are the key touch points? An illustrator friend of mine, Zach Gorman, said it on Twitter like, what were the radioactive spider bite moments that transformed you? I looked back throughout my creative practice and we're trying to identify what were the key shifts and what were the touch points in that journey that really mattered. And I also tried to pick out ones that I saw a pattern in the creative heroes that I wanted to emulate in terms of their journey and practice. And so I came up with six things. It's not an exhaustive list. I'm sure this order isn't perfect, but we've been working through them. We talked about learning some skill. You know, you gotta learn some chords. You gotta learn a little anatomy if you're gonna draw something. You gotta, you gotta get some basic skills, but it's not all about skill. You gotta dig in and put in your story into the work. That's number two. Number three is you gotta stylize it. You gotta make it match. The style has to match or mismatch in an interesting way your story. Then you gotta create space. You gotta create headspace, physical art making space. Space is really important for making your best work, but at some point you're gonna hit a wall. You're going to hit a place where you are making legitimate artwork, but the amount of effort you pour in isn't making it any better. And I think part of that is for me, when I was starting out in my illustration practice, you know, my only intention was just like, how do I make the dopest thing ever? How do I just make it cooler? How can I make something super, super sweet? And that was about all there was to it. There was no nutritional value to this thing. There wasn't any depth to it. I didn't know what else to shoot for. And it was kind of like at some point, you got yourself a nice soda pop. Doesn't have any nutritional value, but it'll give you a nice sugar high right off the bat. Super, super sweet. But if you keep trying to just make it sweeter at that point, now you're just stuffing in gummy bears and Twizzlers and pop rocks and all kinds of stuff in that. It's just too much. Like it's not making it any better. It's actually maybe overworking it, maybe making it worse. And so in this episode, I want to talk about the fifth part of this series and journey 
we're gonna talk about psychology and how to make not just work that's sweeter, but maybe even explosive. Let's go. I really needed to rehaul my website. I was talking to some web people, looking around, and I got intrigued by Squarespace's new fluid engine, partially because it just sounds cool, but also because it allows you to drag and resize and layer up anything you can imagine. I dove in, rebuilt my site. It's the most me site that I've ever had. I just absolutely love it. Launched it. Got such a great response. Some industry illustration and designy peers even reached out and was like, hey, who coded this thing, man? I'm like, y'all, I did it by myself. No coding with Squarespace's new Fluid Engine. I told him like, you should go check it out. You're gonna be surprised with what you can do. And I built this thing before Squarespace reached out to sponsor the show. So I was like, boom, easy peasy. I was gonna tell you about this new site anyway. Go check it out, anyjpizza.com if you wanna see what I did with it. If you want to try it yourself, make a site that's totally you, where you can build a portfolio, sell content and courses and all kinds of other stuff, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with promo code PEPTALK, all one word, all uppercase. This episode is supported by In The Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express, the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In The Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Ushai. I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you want to hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In The Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. was just at the On Air Fest podcast festival and I saw Debbie Millman from Design Matters do a live interview and it was fantastic. Debbie always does so much good research and really gives the floor to the audience. You should go check out this podcast, Design Matters from the TED Audio Collective. On that show, Debbie Millen, who's a writer and an artist, hosts conversations with designers, writers, artists, and all kinds of other contemporary thinkers. People like Roman Mars, Ai Weiwei, Ethan Hawke, Ashley C. Ford, and many, many, many more. Join them into the inquiry into the broader world of creative culture. Find and follow Design Matters with Debbie Millman wherever you're listening to podcasts. first thing you got to do is you got to quit making art. (laughs) Just give up. Just forget it. There's no point. You can't make it any sweeter. That's not, that's not what I was going to say, but you do quit making art and start making experiments. I think that is the key. And I want to dive into what I mean by psychology, by telling you a little bit about Don Shirley. Have you ever heard of Don Shirley? He was a piano player. A few years back, they made a movie about him called Green Book. It's a little bit of a controversial movie. I haven't seen it, but I've heard it is accused of being kind of a white savior thing and misses the point of his story. 
I stumbled upon a different side of his story in the book, A Little Devil in America by Hanif Abdur-Rakib, a Columbus author, but also just like world-renowned poet and music critic. And in that book, Hanif tells a different story about Don Shirley that I just, you know, when I read it, it was one of those like, drop the book, grab your head and just be like, ah, man, yes, this is what I'm talking about. Except if I would have done that, I would have dropped the book in the bathtub because that's where I do my reading. <laughs> so I didn't drop the book, thankfully. But he was telling the story of Don Shirley and, and I didn't know, I'd never heard about Don Shirley. And he tells this story of a, of a young piano prodigy who like learned the piano when he was three and was just blowing people's minds. And he was on this fast track trajectory and, and it was just incredible. But at some point Don hits a wall. Now it's not the wall we're talking about in this episode. It wasn't because he couldn't make it any sweeter. It was because of his race, because as a black man playing piano in that time, he was just constantly pushed into making jazz music when what he really loved was classical music. And he, got, he just couldn't find a pathway to where he wanted to be. And eventually he just called it quits. And he just gave up the whole thing and he went into instead studying psychology. So he went to school for psychology. And it was at a time where in the early 50s, there was just this huge uproar in the parents that they were really concerned that music was, you know, corrupting the children, the youth, that it was glorifying crime, making them immoral. And Don Shirley just got really interested in this question from the psychology angle, as well as the music angle, having had all this history there. And so he decided he wanted to explore this. He got a grant to explore the correlation between music and, and culture and um, psychology. And he set up these shows where he was playing piano in front of a live audience, but he wasn't just playing his songs. He was actually in real time watching how the choices he made, the notes that he played, how they affected the mood and, and the behavior and the tone of the audience. And he even went so far as to plant other people from the study in the audience to watch how people's facial expressions changed and how their moods changed and body language changed. And he approached this creative outlet more as an experiment than he did as a piece of art. And the funny thing is this side road of psychology ended up becoming the way to this incredible music career. Now, I don't know anything about classical music, but I have heard the name Igor Stravinsky. And I'm guessing you, that probably rings a bell to you, whether you're, a, you know, I'm about, my knowledge of classical music is about as good as Kermit the Frog in Sesame Street once. He's like, uh, well, it's not the kind of music old Billy Shakespeare used to write. Um, that's kind of uh, where my music knowledge starts and ends. But I've heard of Stravinsky. And Stravinsky once said of Don Shirley that he had the virtuosity of the gods. He was legit. And, and he did some incredible creative things. I throw um, some of his piano albums on from time to time since I heard about him. And I really enjoy him. I love, I love a good piano vibe. And 
I heard this story and it just blew me away, but not for the reasons that I think you might think. It's not because this story is so unusual or atypical for a creator, but quite the opposite. I actually feel like maybe this is the journey. This is the path because I think about people like Chris Rock who had a very similar journey where here's a guy who was clearly just really funny, got onto Saturday Night Live, had a run on there that was semi-successful. And then after his time on Saturday Night Live, just hit a wall. It was a different wall, but it was a creative wall in, in a similar way to Don Shirley. And what happened was he had to not just make it sweeter, not just make it cooler. How do I actually figure out how this works? He started doing his own experiments in the comedy clubs and he started to go right on stage. And even now today, he's famous for going into a club and bombing when he's starting to develop his new special. And he's not afraid to treat creativity as an experiment. In that same way, Chris Rock took the path of creator, psychologist, back to creator because he was watching in real time, how is this material hitting and affecting? How, what if I change it to this? What if I tweak this bit? How is that gonna impact him? And you might be thinking like, yo, I'm not a comedian or performer or a musician. I can't just show up in the club and start you know, t testing my material on people. But I get the same sense from people like legendary graphic designer, Milton Glaser. And if you don't know Milton Glaser by name, you definitely know his work. He's probably most famous in the mainstream for his I Heart New York design that you've seen a billion, jillion times on hats and T-shirts and, and everything else. And, and then it's been parodied and ripped off and all kinds of things over the years. My personal favorite is a poster that he did for Bob Dylan, like Woo! Go check out Milton Glaser's Bob Dylan poster, and you'll be like, "Oh, I see, I see the influence on that for you, Andy." Just absolutely love it. But even more than Milton Glaser's design, I am a huge fan of his design thinking and his approach to his creativity. And I've listened to so many interviews and lectures from Glazer because I love the way that he approaches the work through a psychological lens. He talks to the gestalt kind of human perception. How does someone digest a poster? And he describes the law of closure, this idea that a great poster design isn't finished on the page, but in the viewer. And that there's actually, when you leave, intentionally leave things unfinished or, or parts blotted out, you're actually inviting a, a conversation with the viewer. And when they have to finish that thing in their head, it creates a chemical combustion within them that actually makes them feel something. And I'm not talking about a metaphorical chemical combustion. I'm talking about an actual chemical reaction in the brain, in the heart, in the mind that changes. It's not just sweeter, it's explosive. It's like somewhere along the line, these artists either on purpose or by accident, you know, they're stuffing, try to make the work better, throwing Twizzlers in there. I tried bubblicious bubble gum. I put all, you know, all this stuff in the soda. 
by accident, they, maybe they ran out of candy and they're like, I'll put some mints in there, throw some Mentos in there and it creates a chemical reaction and it explodes. And it's like, whoa, this is something different. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the psychology of how the work actually interacts with the person to create a physical sensation, an emotional sensation within the viewer. And when you can do that, that that's where it starts to get interesting. And you're no longer content just to make artwork, but now you're determined to understand how art works on an audience. And you quit making art and you start making experiments. And when you get to the wall of diminishing returns, you can't go any further by just making it better or cooler or sweeter. I think you have to turn to, how do I actually make this thing more potent by understanding how it works and working with that and doing that on purpose? Okay, the second key that I think is necessary for breaking through that wall of diminishing returns is to start communicating through your work. There's a really great little TED Talk by professor of psychology, Melissa Dolez, and it's all about this idea of negative aesthetic reaction and art as communication. Melissa, in studying how people respond to especially abstract art, but art in general, she found this really interesting thing about negative aesthetic reaction. And it's the kind of reaction that someone might have. There's indifference to art. And then there's even going so far as being angry <laughs> about the art. You know, for people that aren't super educated in the arts, especially They'll go into a modern art museum and see something abstract or see a urinal and get angry. And Melissa was like, why, why are they angry? And she found that it's because viewers approach art as a type of communication, but creators often don't. And there's a gap here. There's a problem here that for the viewer, part of what makes them angry is they actually feel like they're being made to feel stupid. Like you don't get it. It's a, almost like a joke on the viewer when the communication isn't clear or meaningful. And that's what results in this kind of negative aesthetic reaction. My suggestion and Melissa's suggestion is to start thinking of your art the way that it's viewed as a form of communication. Now, don't get me wrong. I actually think that there is a ton of room for nuance and not wrapping up every message in a bow or being too direct. I think that there's a lot of options here. And you can decide on purpose how obscured you want your message to be. But I think the point is that it should be a choice. It should be an intention. And you should understand what that choice is going to result in. And so Melissa talks about this thing, the Grecian framework of communication. And there's several parts to that. You know, if you want to dive deeper into it, you can go search Grecian framework of communication or check out the show notes. But essentially, it's about how to communicate well in conversation 
And then Melissa is applying this to art. One of the pieces that stood out most for me was the bravery to say what you mean and not obscure it. You know, if you've ever talked to somebody that they're really in a fanciful kind of way, dancing around the point, not really having clarity with what they're trying to say. And sometimes you get the sense that they don't actually know what they're talking about or have a point. They're just trying to sound smart. You ever been in a meeting like that where just like uh, you get that buzzword guy who raises his hand is like, Actually, I'd like to um, chime in here. You know, I think we've got a lot of good dialogue happening, and I think that's important. Dialogue, listening, uh, uh, speaking, an exchange of information. These are the kinds of things that are going to help us actually move the needle and see a real ROI. (laughs) You ever heard this? You ever heard this person? You don't want to be that person in the art world. You don't want to just look the part but not actually communicate. One of the interesting takeaways from this talk was that when it comes to abstract art appreciation, abstract art not having a negative aesthetic reaction from the audience, that usually tends to come from people that actually do have a background in art education. People that are very familiar with art, have have learned a lot about it, have some context for what's going on here. They actually tend to really love and almost prefer more abstracted art. And I think it makes sense. You know, if you ever get into anything, you know, when you first start eating sushi, you might be going with the things that seem the safest to you, the options that are just veggie, spicy mayo, and you're, you know, really like making it digestible. But eventually, if you really get into that thing, you're going to want to push it. You want to go try the more adventurous elements of that. And so people that have a lot of experience with art, it's no wonder that they want something that's a little bit more challenging, a little bit more nuanced, something that requires a little bit more give and take from the audience and the creator. But this other interesting point was teased out from this too, which was they did these really interesting tests that were super conclusive where they had animals create abstract art. And then they had qualified abstract artists create art. And then they had people grade the art and they put them up against each other. And of course, the professional abstract artists work one every single time. And the point was, yes, here's very subjective practices that are that are hard to nail down the exact value or what makes them good. But on an intuitive level, there is a sense that one is clearly better than the other. In the latest Wes Anderson movie, uh, The French Dispatch, there's a lot of funny like art criticism chat that I found particularly funny being from the arts. They talk about like this art dealer is trying to crack the market with this artist who is in prison and he's explaining the artist's abstract work. He goes on to say like, I've actually seen him do very realistic painting, but he actually thinks that this is better. And it's this qualification of like, no, he can actually draw, um, but he actually thinks this thing is better. Like that's how we have to objectify creative work to feel good about it. But ultimately on an intuitive sense, if you allow yourself to take in art through that lens, we have an objective sense of what's good in abstract art and what's not. There's clearly a correlation there. I just thought it was really interesting. But the point being is that when it comes to 
your communication style within your creativity and the choices that you make, here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about who is your audience. And I want you to think about it very specifically because if your audience is, you know, highly educated in the arts consumers, like an illustrator, when you're an illustrator working with clients, your audience is the art director. They're people that have a history of art making themselves off. And a lot of art directors are actually illustrators or graphic designers. They went to art school. They have a background in that. It's okay to have a more nuanced approach in your communication style if that's the case, because those are the folks that appreciate the abstract uh, aesthetic. The, they, they appreciate a, cha- a more challenging conversation through your art. Whereas if your art is for the everyday mainstream person, then you might have to go the extra mile and communicate a little bit more clearly. And so this point of communicating with your art, it's not a binary black and white. It's right to always have clarity in your message and it's wrong to obscure it. Instead, I'd actually just challenge you to review who are you making it for? What level of communication are they ready to appreciate? And make your choices with that in mind. Okay, number three, let your audience finish the job. Let your audience finish the work. Earlier in this episode, I mentioned Milton Glaser and how I've heard him pontificate on this notion of the gestalt principle of closure. The law of closure just says, you know, if I show you half a face, you're going to imagine the other half because you know faces have two sides. And if it, unless it's two-face from Batman, you're probably going to be able to to flip that uh, symmetrically. And you can actually use this to your advantage as a creator. Now, Gestalt, that idea, that word, it's just referencing human perception. And back in the day, I used to teach this little class to a community college on design fundamentals. And we dove deep into the world of Gestalt, things like negative space uh, and the law of closure. The main takeaway I want you to have here is understanding how the art works on your audience means that it can affect your decisions. Now, personally, I don't go into creating anything thinking, I think I'll make something through the Gestalt principle of closure. No, I don't do that. But what happens is because I have that named and filed in my subconscious, when the opportunity arises to do that, I can actually capitalize on it. When I'm like in the previous episode, when we're talking about creative spaces, I'm in that headspace of play and my mind's wondering, I'm in the bathtub taking notes and I get this notion that, oh, Here's an opportunity for closure. Because I'm familiar with the principle, I notice that opportunity and I can capitalize on it. And I can use everything I know about how do you maximize the explosiveness of that experience. Now, 
this can apply to visual work like Milton Glaser's posters where, you know, either through negative space or half finishing an image in a conceptual way creates a opportunity for the viewer to actually complete the work in their mind and therefore create a sensation within them that compels them more towards that poster than to other posters that are completely finished, that can work in the visual world. You can dive deep into other Gestalt principles that kind of maximize that. But it also works in every other art form. You know, one of the things that I've been doing over the past, you know, seven years is really, and even maybe longer without being intentional about it, I've really taken my favorite stand-up comedians and, and storytellers and taken their bits that I love that really viscerally in an explosive manner create a sensation within me and isolate those jokes. You know, maybe they're two minutes long and just fine-tooth comb, figure out when is the moment that it hits me? And then figure out why does it hit me that way? Once you have that experience of throwing a Mentos into that Coke bottle and all of a sudden it's not just sweeter, it's got a whole other layer of what's going on. Once that happens, you're really left with three decisions. You can either be like, well, I wasn't in, wasn't in control of that, didn't expect that to happen. Hope the gods of mysterious creativity bestow something like that on me again in the future and just go back to throwing in the next candy that you got. You know, there's a lot of artists that do that. I think that for me personally, when I approach my creative work, I do try to acknowledge the quasi-random aspect of greatness within a work, that it's not completely in your hands. As Christoph Neiman would say, as a pro, your job is to make good work. You don't get to control when it happens to be great. I think that let, letting go is very healthy because I think it helps you get into a non-pressured mindset that's really essential for those interesting connections to be made. But I think this washing of the hands, so to speak, and being like, well, who knows what candy will make that happen again next time. I think that's a, a dangerous space to be in when you've completely detached yourself from even learning what practices would actually get your interesting results on a more consistent basis. And so you can have that approach. You can have the second approach that says, oh, I threw the Mentos in the Diet Coke and it exploded. Now I'm the Mentos Diet Coke artist. You just repeat that one trick over and over and over again until nobody wants to see it anymore. Um, you don't want that either. I think there's actually a third way. I think you can notice it, get curious about it. Ask yourself, how did this happen? On a molecular level, what happened between these two chemicals that produced that? Is there a way to get something more potent that's the same as Mentos, but much stronger? Or should I try different sodas? Because, you know, going from the Coke to the Diet Coke, the Diet Coke actually gets a stronger response. You know, getting interested, treating it as an experiment. I think that's key. And so as I would go back and filter through all of these little comedy bits or these stories that made me cry, I would start thinking about, you know, what made the chemical connection happen? And I try to isolate it and work backwards. And one of the ones that I came across was an audio verbal exploration of the law of closure, because I found often the jokes that I laughed the hardest at were the ones where the comic didn't even say the punchline. 
what would happen was it would be set up so well that right before they said the punchline, you knew what they were going to say. And it created a sensation within you, right? Like you're like, oh man. And sometimes they'll pause and let everybody in the audience just get it and then say it. And sometimes they won't say it at all. You'll hear comics just celebrate the other comedians that are comfortable with space, with leaving things unsaid. And that's part of this masterwork of the law of closure. If you listened to episode 346, I told a story about buying a treadmill. It was a huge hassle, getting it in my basement, building it up, and then standing on it only to realize that the ceiling was too low. (laughs) And it was super annoying. Now, a lot of the stories that I tell in the show or in the classes or, or just anywhere are usually at least run by my wife, Sophie, if not a collaboration between us. And we had actually told that treadmill story to family and friends. And we're kind of like workshopping different ways to say it. And at some point, Sophie said it like this. She said that I stood on the top of that treadmill and I felt my hair graze the ceiling. I thought that was such a perfect line. It's probably the best line in that story. And I, first of all, I just got to give credit where credit's due. That was, that was a Sophie line. She's very good at the buildup and the language element. And that's a great example. I didn't say, I didn't spell it out. I didn't say that the ceiling was too low and I was going to hit my head and we would have to take the treadmill back. I just said, and I felt my hair graze the ceiling and it just, created some space right there for you to finish the end of that story in your own mind. And so I'm always playing with these principles. There's an amazing, incredible episode of Song Exploder on Netflix where master of creative psychology through song, Lin-Manuel Miranda goes deep into his song, Wait For It, from his musical Hamilton. It is a masterclass in the kinds of things we're talking about. The layers. When I look to learn from a creator, I'm always trying to look for things that creators do on purpose. People that are able to produce results consistently. When you're able to tap into the psychology of how art works on your audience, when you understand some of these principles, you really create a little utility belt, like a little Robert Pattinson. I haven't seen the new Batman, but I think he probably still has a utility belt. I mean, that's pretty essential. He doesn't have any powers. He's got to have trinkets in his, in his little suspenders. And uh, it, you, that's you <laughs> as the artist. Lin-Manuel has a whole bucket load. And you listen to the decisions, the intentionality that he made, the point of the song, connect with the the rhythm of the song and the lyrics of the song and how every single thing points back to Burr's ability to wait for the perfect moment, to wait for it. And even at the end of that song, what happens is the last time he goes to sing, wait for it, he doesn't say it on beat. He creates a space. And in your mind, you complete the wait for it. And then he skips a few beats and then he says it. And what does that do? It creates an actual physical sensation within you. And Lin-Manuel didn't do that on accident. 
Lin-Manuel didn't make the greatest banger of all time. We don't talk about Bruno on accident. The layers, I was, you know, watching YouTube videos about <laughs> Encanto. They were talking about in, we don't talk about Bruno at the end where all of the different singers are singing at the same time. That's a thing in musicals you've probably recognized before. They're all singing their different parts, but it all fits into the greater whole. That's actually called a madrigal, which is the name of the family. The layers. Good Lord, the psychological layers that this man commands in his creativity is so inspirational to me. And that's the kind of psychological prowess and execution that we'll never hit. None of us will ever get there, but why not? We're not gonna give up our shot, if, if you know what I mean. Little recap, and then I'm gonna give you some homework. Professor Pizza can't let you go without call to adventure, something to put to practice. We talked about the the wall of diminishing returns. Have you gotten to a place where you've got the, some skill, you've got the story, you've got the style, you've got the space, but now all the effort you're putting in, it's not equaling better results. The, uh, the, the effort isn't correlating with the effect. That's when it's time to start injecting your practice with some psychology, not just being okay to make artwork, but figure out how the art works. And to do that, I suggest I'm exploring. I'm always trying to, this is kind of where I'm at. Honestly, I feel like I've been here for the past few years of just kind of playing with the work, just experimenting with psychological precepts, if you will. <laughs> and, and the first part of that is quit making art, start making experiments like Don Shirley and, and Chris Rock and Milton Glaser you know, treat every single thing as like a question. Like, what if I did this? What would that do to the Diet Coke? <laughs> Number two, start communicating. Talked about Melissa Dalee's and negative aesthetic reactions and Grecian framework of communication, all to say like, who are you talking to and, and how clear do you need to be in your communication? The ultimate takeaway on this piece for me, uh, the, the part that's juicy that I really liked was this idea that, Viewers are approaching art as communication, but most creators aren't. And sometimes that creates a problem. Third, number three, let your audience finish the work. And we just finished up talking about all the layers of Lin-Manuel Miranda and how much psychology he bakes into his stuff and letting your audience not, I think there's a piece of this that's not pandering or demeaning or talking down to your audience. Your audience knows what the other side of a face looks like. So maybe you don't need to draw it. Like, will you let them participate? Will you let them finish the work? All right, your CTA call to adventure for this episode is to become a focal point. We talked about, while we're on the subject of psychology, we were talking about gestalt, you know, the, the laws of human perception, how we take in stuff. That's pretty much what all this episode is about. We're going to do a whole other episode on psychology because I, I planned so much that I couldn't cram it in. And there's this whole other side. I want to go on a weird side. You're going to get really, uh, Carl Jung, 
weird archetypal strangeness in the next episode on psychology. But I wanted to get into kind of, I want to get, get a little groundwork of rationality and in, in some science, at least referencing some scientists before we go into weird zone. But on the topic of gestalt, becoming a focal point. Focal point is a kind of gestalt principle where how do you capture an eye's attention to work through your work in a way that's pleasing? When you don't have any hierarchy in a piece of art and your eye doesn't know where to go, what happens is it just bounces all over the place and it feels very unsettling. It feels like looking at static because there's nothing to order how I'm looking at this piece. And so a focal point, and you can usually have a primary, a secondary, a tertiary. Yeah, I pulled out the tertiary <laughs> focal point. Uh, and the way you do that is you take a pattern and then you break it. One of my all-time favorite designs comes from mid-century mastermind, Paul Rand. He has this poster he did for IBM. It's just perfect circles, a bunch of circles, different colors. And then one of those circles is the pupil in this graphic looking eye. And that it, it's the same with a little bit of difference. And the sameness is as important as the difference. You know, you could put all those little circles and then just put a dinosaur there. And it's too different. It's not breaking the pattern. It's destroying the pattern, right? It's, it, there's a pleasing uh, nature in a, in a, it makes sense when you're viewing it. I love that poster and I bring it up, not just so that you could, yeah, explore focal points in your work. You're probably already doing that. You know, the bridge in a song or the chorus in a song or the biggest, boldest piece of type on a, uh, on a piece of, um, typeset brochure. Uh, I don't know. You know how to make focal points. I'm sure of it, but do you know how to be a focal point? I dove deep into this world, Wharton School marketing professor, Jonah Berger. He did this massive study of pop songs, what makes mega hits, mega hits. And he found this really interesting point. And it was that these songs were focal points within their genre. And so they had all the trappings of their genre. If it was EDM, if it was dubstep, what are the kids listening to these days? I don't know. The, Olivia Rodrigo, whatever it is, you know, <laughs> is that cool? I'll ask my 13-year-old. I actually have way better taste than her. Actually, that's only partially true. Her taste is actually incredible. She listened to Olivia Rodrigo, who actually, I'll mess with that. She also listened to Phoebe Bridgers. I mean, I mean, am I bragging? Yes, I am. My, my daughter is extremely cool. <laughs> uh, but... What was I talking about? I was talking about, okay, Jonah Berger. He was saying that these mega hits, they are clearly within the pattern in one way. They are firmly within a genre that is established. That's, you know, a movement. But then the topic that they're covering is unexplored within that genre. They're taking a massive left turn. They're taking a risk talking about something that is completely unconventional or surprising within the lyrics or the point or topic of the song. And it got me just 
back to this idea of the purple cow. Seth Godin has a book. He's a marketing expert. I actually think he's kind of a philosopher posing as a marketing expert just to make the world a better place. He goes in these marketing places that are just slimy, grimy, shysty folks. <laughs> and he says these beautiful human things. And I'm a big fan of the sacrifice he's making, calling himself a marketer to be in those spaces. But one of the things he talks about is this purple cow idea. And the thing that's amazing about a purple cow is he's saying, if you're driving along and you see a purple cow in a field of cows, you're going to stop and be like, what the heck is going on there? Or you're at least going to notice, you're going to pay some attention to it. But I thought it's interesting. He's not saying a purple splat. you know, some, it's not a purple thing that's non-existent, so wacky that it blows your freaking head off. It's a, it's still part of the pattern. It's still a cow amongst cows. It just happens to be the one that's purple. And he tells the story of how silk almond milk caught on is that they used to be on the shelf because they don't actually need to refrigerate them, but they never caught on there. And it wasn't until they threw it into the refrigerator, even though it didn't need to be there, that it started to become a focal point because it was milk, 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 not milk. And so recently I was at a podcasting conference and I took some paint markers and pencils to do my little visual notes um, and doodle while I'm listening because it helps me pay attention. And I, I take out my sketchbook. I start working away. And within the first five minutes, because this principle of the focal point is so embedded in my mind, because I have it as a tool in my Robert Pattinson to utility belt, <laughs> because of that thought of focal point, I realized like, hold on a second. I've never been to a conference where I'm the only one drawing because I've always gone to illustration or design conferences. And I thought, hold on a second, I'm going to massively lean into this because not only am I going to be the only one drawing, I'm good at drawing. I do this for a living. And you know, every person I sat next to was like, Ooh, that's cool. What are you doing there? And by the end of the festival, I'd shared all of throughout the day. I kind of treated it like they were paying me to, to do it, even though they weren't. And I was cataloging a bunch of the different sessions with my visual notes. And by the end of the second day, the conference shared all of my posts. And it was this ability to break through by breaking the pattern. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about the pattern that you're in. For me, for the longest time, I was in the pattern of being an illustrator. And I was within that pattern, I broke it by being the podcaster. Because I was the only person with a podcast like my podcast in the illustration world. But then it was just as easy to go into the podcast world and break the pattern by being the illustrator. And from the beginning of my path as a podcaster, I'd always hoped that one day I would get to explore that space, that I would start out and build this thing as the illustrator with a podcast, but be able to dip in and out of that world and into the world of podcasting and being different in that space, creating a focal point in that space by being the illustrator. And so how do you become a focal point? How do you use what we know about human perception to break free and gain new attention for your work? Because you might be a musician 
but you might have a background in astrophysics. You might be a filmmaker, but your mom was a psychoanalyst. And so how can you create a focal point? Your homework is to just start thinking about what is the pattern I'm already a part of and how am I positioned to create a focal point? Massive thanks to the band Y and lead singer Yoni Wolf for our incredible jingle and soundtrack. Huge thanks to the Creative Pep Talk team, Connor Jones of Pending Beautiful for editing, content assistance and assistance on all things from Ryan Appleton, Sophie Miller and Katie Chandler. Thanks to all of you for listening and until we speak again, stay pepped up.